Our coverage continues now with Luminous, Laura Coates, and hmm, a, uh, Astrological, Allison Camerata. I'm, I'm just riffing right now. No, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. I see. Astounding, astounding, Allison. Astounding, oh. Allison. Better, Astounding. better. You had you knocked Laura's out of the park, and then I could I see you just. Luminous. Yeah, just you know, I'm running I out. Thought it was I'm running out. Referencing my smile. My dad is a dentist. Thank you so much. Also, the fills are getting clobbered right now, so I'm you know I'm not I'm You're not distracted. jubilant. I'm not jubilant. You're not jubilant, Jake. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Oh, or uh, nor jocular. Time. Um, <laughs> More jaded. You, you seemed jocular when Jimmy Kimmel was cracking you up. That was great. Well, he's he's a, he's funny. He was really funny. He's a funny guy. That was great. Anyway, great to see you guys. Okay. Nice Have to a see great you show. Too. Thank you. I'll get my luminous self over here. All Thanks, right. Allison. Yeah. Keep it up, Laura. Good evening, everybody. I'm Allison Camerata in New York. And I'm Laura Coates in Washington, D.C., and this is CNN Tonight on a night when the President of the United States lays out his closing argument with the midterms just merely days away. He's warning that election deniers could lead the country down to what he calls a path to chaos, and he insists that democracy is indeed on the ballot. We're about to have an election where things that he's warning about may actually turn out to be true. So I wonder, what happens if it does, Allison? Nothing good. Laura, nothing good, as we've seen um, already in the past. Plus, in these final days of the campaign, Herschel Walker is going after Barack Obama. Some of you may not remember, but Herschel Walker was a heck of a football player. I mean, I, I mean, some of you are, are too young to remember, but in college, he was amazing. One of the best running backs of all time. But, but, but here's the question. Does that make him the best person to represent you in the U.S. Why don't he go back to wherever he's from and get back in his million-dollar mansion? Hmm, go back to wherever he's from. Mm. We're going down that old birtherism road again. And uh, why are these two fighting with each other or going after each other rather than uh, Herschel Walker's actual challenger? We have a lot to talk about tonight. Mm. So let's. And keep- by the way, Allison, yeah. where he's from also included the White House. Was that an endorsement by Herschel Walker for President Barack Obama to return, maybe at some point? Interesting your interpretation. things have happened. Maybe that is the right interpretation. (laughs) All right, we'll dive into all of that. So let's kick it off with Georgia's Lieutenant Governor, Jeff Duncan, who's here here with us. We also have CNN political commentator David Swerdlick and journalist Mara S. Campo. Great to have all of you. Okay, so let's listen to President Biden's closing argument, where he is obviously very concerned about democracy, very concerned about an election denier. I mean, there are hundreds of them running and one of them winning um, anything from governor to secretary of state. So let's listen to what he says about the path to chaos. As I stand here today, there are candidates running for every level of office in America, for governor, Congress, attorney general, secretary of state, who won't commit, they will not commit to accepting the results of elections that they're running in. This is a path to chaos in America. It's unprecedented. It's unlawful. And it's un-American. So, Lieutenant Governor, he's talking about the lies that threaten democracy, and he's talking about how to preserve democracy. Is that a winning political argument? Well, I know they want it to be, and I tried to keep track of the number of times he mentioned democracies on the ballot, and I lost track of, of the number of times. Uh, unfortunately for the Democratic Party, the American Party, the American uh, system is thinking. Americans are thinking about the economy. Uh, it's it's really racking up uh, their businesses, their communities, gas prices, uh, 401ks. It's on the top of their mind. 
But can't you argue that without democracy, none of that matters? Oh, absolutely. I've spent the last two years of my life making that argument. Um, but America is distracted with the economy. And, uh, you know, of all the things he spoke about tonight, he never mentioned the economy, at least uh, that, that I didn't hear. Um, our, our, by our count, it was one time he did mention okay. the economy, but he definitely hit democracy many, many, many more times. Um, so, David, uh, here the, the lieutenant governor is not wrong. Here is a CNN poll from um, last week. Most important issue in choosing your congressional candidate. Um, number one, economy inflation by a long shot, 51 percent. Abortion there, 15 percent. Voting elections, which I guess is we, another word for democracy, yeah. that's down at 9 percent. Um, so why is President Biden hitting that so hard? I agree with the lieutenant governor that this that, that this is not what people are focused on right now. But I think it could have been a good closing argument for Vice President, for President Biden, excuse me, uh, if Democrats had focused back in the late summer, early fall on their legislative wins, uh, semiconductors, guns, getting uh, Justice Jackson confirmed, um, the burn pits legislation, and not given that first democracy speech where he distracted everybody with the semi-fascist line that got their message all off track and focused on what they were doing for people come around a week before the election and close with this democracy argument. He said the best line of that last speech again tonight, which is, you can't love your country only when you win. Said it back then, said it now. That's the crux of the speech. But there's so much noise, as you're saying, at this point, and so many other issues, I'm not sure it breaks through. I don't know, Mara. I listened to President Biden talk a lot about, tout his uh, accomplishments a lot. He get, When I was doing the two to four show, every single day we would blow up our show because he would have an unexpected press conference in front of a bridge to tout the infrastructure or to tout the semiconductors. I mean, all the time. But I hear you that, that those messages didn't quite resonate like the fascist line, semi-fascist line. Right. Yeah, those weren't cutting through. And when you talk about the issues that people care about right now, he can't really make a very strong case about the economy right now because a lot of voters hold him responsible for what we're going through. So I think to your point, Alice, and he's trying to appeal to our core values and saying, if your vote doesn't matter, then nothing else will matter. And this was a very clear warning and acknowledgement by the president that he fears that this midterm election will be 2020 2.0, except perhaps more dangerous because now election deniers have had two years of practice to work on this. There are a number of similarities. You have a number of states in very close races. You have very high stakes. The balance of Congress hangs in, 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 the, in the balance. You have, uh, likely it's going to be days before we know what some of these races, what the outcomes will be because it takes time to count these mail-in ballots. There will be election deniers who are already laying the groundwork for saying that there's fraud, that these are, these are invalid if they results lose. if they lose. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of similarities from 2020, except this time around, we may not have people marching on the U.S. Capitol, but marching on state capitals and marching at local election offices. So this is the president saying, we've seen this before. Now we have some foresight. So what are you going to do? Yeah. All right. Stand by, friends. Laura, so, I mean, that's it, it may not be politically winning, as you heard the lieutenant governor say. Yeah. However, it is certainly on the president's mind as the um you know, most critical issue. I mean, you think about it as you articulated. I mean, the idea is nothing really can get done unless democracy is functioning. You're not able to really 
address the economy, address crime, address abortion, address a whole host of issues unless people actually feel represented. So I think he was going in that direction. But let's ask my panel. They're here in Washington, D.C. with me right now. CNN political analyst Alex Burns, political commentator Karen Finney, and Republican strategist Doug High. You know, maybe I'm just a a glass half full sort of person today, even though we're six days out. But it sounds like if you're talking about, if you're President Biden and you're talking about Let's manage expectations, prepare for there to be election denial happening. Democracy on the ballot, do you think that he thinks that the red wave is not really coming? Because in order for him to actually contest an election, Republicans must be losing. The MAGA Republicans are actually losing in his mind. Is this kind of an optimistic spin to address this idea of voter enthusiasm and democracy on the ballot? What do you think? Well, I think actually there are a couple of things going on here. I think Democrats are concerned that what we're seeing is GOP talking points about a red wave. We're seeing a lot of different polls. I think the American public is probably over-polled at this point. But when you look at the turnout data, there is enthusiasm on the Democratic side. And so one of our concerns, one of Democrats' concerns is, let's not let's let the voters have their say. Let's not tell them what's going to happen and depress turnout. Mm. That's number one. Number two... You know, the New York Times reported that over a couple dozen of the lawyers who worked for Donald Trump's efforts in 2020 to overthrow the election and all sorts of different schemes in the states are right now working in a number of states for a number of campaigns on the Republican side. So it was kind of a presaging that sort of says, we've seen this before. We know what this is. Don't let it stop you from voting. That's part of the democracy message. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a vote. But also, be, remember that it may take a little time. We're not going to necessarily have sure. all the answers on election night, and that's okay. And part of this concern is, you're thinking about it, the way we count and tabulate. I mean, there's not this, you know, there's always this thought of you go to bed at night and someone's winning. You wake up in the morning and it's different. Those wee small hours in the morning oftentimes can be the most politically vulnerable period for people to actually have trust in the system because at the time people will pick up and say, oh, this is what this is. I go to bed. Someone you didn't like was ahead. Now, all of a sudden, the person's winning. It's not true. But that's that sort of we hours conversation I think he's having. What do you think? No, and there, I think that's right. And I think there are so many pressure points in our political system, which is, frankly, a, a pretty strange patchwork for a modern country <laughs> to have, where uh, different states have wildly different rules for uh, how you vote, when your votes are counted, which uh, municipalities are likelier to uh, report first. It's, it's confusing to people, right? And everybody who works in politics knows this. And the difference is that some people who work in politics uh, know that that confusion is there and then play upon it to sow distrust uh, in the system. And there are other people who try to explain to people you know, why this might seem strange, but actually you know, there's a process that you need to let it work. I will say, Laura, I think that part of where the president's coming from here and part of where, uh, you know, the White House administration, Democratic leaders generally uh, are coming from here is, look, I think they recognize there's a very strong likelihood that Republicans yeah. are going to pick up one or both uh, chambers of Congress next week. And I think looking ahead to a divided Washington with a pretty far-right faction in the Republican Party gaining power they want to set the table for the American people to understand the conflicts that are going to come next. And in fact, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, didn't even want to comment today when she was asked by reporters about the potential of a divided government. She wanted to sort of have a more optimistic notion of it. But it's funny, while we're talking about democracy in peril and the more conceptual, there's also the argument happening in cities across this country about the tangible. And crime oftentimes is what people are pointing at as an attack on Democrats, as the idea of so-called 
blue-run cities. I had a chance to talk to the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, today, um, and, and she spoke about it from the perspective of a language sort of barrier happening. Those who are talking about crime and guns, listen to this. Because Lee Zeldin and Republicans cannot say they're tough on crime and be soft on guns. It is the guns in our streets, 400 million guns in this country. Any gun that's on a street in New York City is by nature illegal. They came from somewhere else. Mm, she goes on to talk about this and the idea of, of thinking about how where some Democrats are talking about gun control as their fear of crime. Republicans are talking about the idea of being unsafe. And for many, although it's lower on that CNN chart we pulled out in the poll, this is still part of the biggest talking points in the country, right? Crime. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Karen, I know you've worked on the North Carolina Senate race. I'm from North Carolina. If, if you watch a college football game, North Carolina is playing NC State or something like that. That's actually in a couple of weeks. Uh, you're going to see a lot of Ted Budd ads on crime. And if he's not talking about crime, he's talking about uh, the economy. And it's, it's why I watched the Biden speech today with some sort of uh, mystified sense about why he was doing this and doing it today. I thought it was a good speech politically, or I thought it was a good speech how it was delivered. Um, I agree with a lot of what Biden says on these election deniers that are, that are taking over county boards and obviously states. Um, but politics is about people, and people are concerned about what's happening to them every day of their lives. And that's when they go to the grocery store, whether they go to, when they go to the gas station, and everything they see and hear about crime. And by the way, if you go to the grocery store, you may have to hit a button for somebody to come to get things for you because of shoplifting. So even if you're not a victim of crime, you see that crime's a daily issue. But can I just say on crime a couple of things that I think are important to remember? So Third Way did a comparison of Blue cities, red cities, blue states, red states. And actually, crime has risen at higher rates in the red cities run by Republican mayors and in red states, actually not in the blue cities. And that progressive prosecutors and those policies, there's another couple of studies that show actually some of those progressive ideologies have not increased crime. Yeah. So when we really dig into the numbers uh, it's a little bit of a different picture. However, it is a great issue to demagogue on. I'm glad the governor talked about guns because I think for Democrats, pointing out also that crime is about what does a safe community look and feel like? It's more than just, you know, it's about guns. It's about people feeling safe in their homes, their places and, of and work, and to, schools. And to your point, it, it's not about numbers. It's about how voters feel. Mm. And the New York governor's race is a race solely because of the issue of crime. You know, Lee Zeldin was attacked at an event, and then a few weeks later, there was a, uh, a drive-by shooting in front of his house. That makes yeah. that issue front and center. Well, Allison, feelings, nothing more <laughs> than feelings we're going to talk about next. I mean, the idea of politics being local, and it really is about feelings. You think about it, how people are feeling about the issue. And, you know, there's actually on our website for CNN.com, Jake Tapper compares the perception of crime versus the realities of what's happening. I encourage everyone to look at that explainer as well. Well, we've here on our panel just been talking while you guys have been talking about how in that CNN poll, crime is down there. It is not yeah. one of the top issues. I mean, the, as I think you've mentioned, it's only 3% of respondents consider it the issue, the most important issue that they'll be voting for their congressperson on, which is surprising because crime is part of what feels like a daily conversation. Yep. So it's hard to square all of that. But people, I hear you, feel uneasy whether or not the crime has actually gone up in their neighborhoods. Um, so sure. we'll, get to, we'll get to all of that. Meanwhile, a lawyer for 
President Trump, called Justice Clarence Thomas, quote, the key to Trump's plan to delay the certification of the election. We have the newly released emails that beg the question, why were they so confident that Clarence Thomas would do what they want? We're just days out from the 2022 midterms, and we're getting new details about the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Former president's election lawyers were actually counting on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, apparently, stepping in to delay the certification of Biden's win. In one email from December 31st, 2020, Trump lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro writing, Thomas would end up being the key here. We want to frame things so that Thomas could be the one to issue some sort of stay. And of course, the idea here, a stay being, let's delay this until maybe every I is dotted and T crossed, even for things that are not evidentiary supported. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And by the way, this was December 31st. So before yeah. January 6th. So it shows that this was a plan. Before, you know, six days before January 6th, that that didn't just sort of spontaneously combust no. on January uh, 6th. OK, back with us right now. We have Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, also CNN political commentator David Swerdlick and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, why were these lawyers so gung ho to get Justice Clarence Thomas to hear their story? Well, because they had a bogus theory. They had nowhere to go. And all they were doing was hoping you could get someone somewhere in wearing a robe of some well, authority. Sort of, but they seem to really so, want Clarence Thomas. This is important. Clarence Thomas is not the bad guy of these emails. I think we need to be clear about this. There's plenty of other reasons he should recuse. He should recuse because of Ginny Thomas's involvement. But he's not the bad guy of these emails. Let me tell you why. First of all, they're not singling him out just because they think he'd be favorable. Every Supreme Court justice is assigned a certain geographic circuit that they are in charge of incoming emergency motions. The 11th Circuit, which includes Georgia, that is Clarence Thomas's territory. We saw it the other day with the Lindsey Graham subpoena. So let's get that, number one. Number two, lawyers all day long talk about judges and justices. Ooh, that one's really good for us. Ooh, we're going to lose if we get her. We're going to win if we get him. I hope we get these two, not that one. That's what they're doing here. The bad guys here are the lawyers, are John Eastman and this Cheeseboro guy, because what they're doing is taking a theory that they know is completely bogus and saying, if we get lucky, if Clarence Thomas puts a hold on this, just a procedural hold, then we'll argue that that's something and that should hold up the January 6th count. Let me read a little bit more of the emails that have just been released courtesy of the uh, January 6th committee. Okay, so uh, this is, uh, again, email from the Trump attorney, Kenneth Cheesebro. It's, uh, it's December 31st. Uh, If we can just get this case pending before the Supreme Court by January 5th, ideally with something positive written by a judge or justice, hopefully Thomas, I think it's our best shot at holding up the count of a state in Congress. Okay, so the plan is laid out here. Now, one more thing, Ellie. Would Justice Thomas have lent them a sympathetic ear to knowing what you know about his leanings and his history, would it have been good to get it in front of Justice Thomas? Oh, if I was in their shoes, he would be my number one draft pick. That would be the one I would want and hope for. And perhaps they even tried to do this through Georgia and perhaps not Arizona or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania because it was Justice Thomas's uh, geographical area. But guess what? They wouldn't be the first people. I'm not making excuses for them. But also, let's remember, Justice Thomas did not bail them out. He did not do this for them. Yeah. Okay. So, David, though, I mean, as Ellie points out, His wife, 
Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, is di was directly involved in trying to overturn the election results of Joe Biden's win. How is it that Clarence Thomas isn't recusing? Right. Texting the White House chief of staff, not some random person. Uh, I think in this situation, not only should Justice Thomas recuse, I would actually argue that he maybe should resign. To Ellie's point, lawyers do what lawyers do. Justice Thomas is not the bad guy in these emails, and nothing in these emails suggests he did anything, that the justice did anything underhand. I will say that Eastman was a clerk of Justice Thomas's. So it is possible, possible that he thought he understood Justice Thomas's thinking, even if there was no collusion or playing footsie. The only other thing I want to add, Allison, is this. I want to tie together what we were talking about before the break with this. President Biden spoke about democracy today. This is a case where lawyers were doing lawyer stuff, but they were also trying to throw sand in the gears of our constitutional republic, of our democratic process, throwing wild legal theories against the wall to see if they could stop the results of a free and fair. If I can just add to that, worse than wild legal theories, the, the emails show they knew they were wrong. They yeah, knew they were right. stuff But up. how did you right. know that they know they're bogus? Where do you see that? that there's they an, know there, there's one bogus. of the emails they're talking about whether they can have Donald Trump certify to their claims about fraud. And they're like, I don't know. We're not so sure about If you're not willing to go take it to your client and say, sign this, that shows that you believe it's not correct. Lieutenant Governor, what do you hear? So very little surprises me coming out of this period of time, right? So, uh, and it fits a pattern, right? We saw this pattern over and over and over again in Georgia, where they would develop a plan, and then they would go out to the field to try to find facts and figures, really only at, at most times to just shape a tweet, right? All of this was just to create enough chaos and doubt to sow the seeds of doubt. And that's what makes this so disturbing, was the plan was developed even without any sort of fact pattern around it. And, uh, you know, this is, once again, not, not surprising that they were scheming to try to take some sort of angle. Yeah, but I really appreciate you saying that because, Laura, that is the truth. They would come up with a scheme or come up with mm -hmm. some cockamamie idea. And then, you know, some of the lawyers from Sidney Powell, et cetera, would go out and try, obviously Rudy Giuliani and try to find some nugget or some kernel that would fit into it. We just watched it all happen. They would plant the seeds, and then when judges would ask them what came of them or why they were being watered, they wanted to turn and say things, like Sidney Powell has said in the past. Of, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Nobody would actually believe what I'm saying. The truth is people did believe. And to this day, this evening, the president of the United States had to talk about it six days before the election, about the idea of election denials, not the closing arguments about all the different issues that are top of mind, maybe in the more tangible sense, but that's what this leads to. That's the consequence. And as you well know, Allison, it also impacts the way people view the credibility of the Supreme Court of the United States. There's already not a lot of transparency, right, about when they recuse, why they choose not to. So this just adds yet another log, unfortunately. But... It also adds to the conversation more broadly about how people view our political system. And the number of recorded threats against members of Congress is actually, do you realize, it's increased more than tenfold since just 2016. And there's a new study that finds that women are targeted more than three times more often than men. We'll talk about the toxicity of politics in this country, Allison, next. While Congress is demanding answers tonight about security from members after Speaker Pelosi's husband was brutally attacked in their San Francisco home. And the U.S. Capitol Police are confirming today that an internal security review is underway, Laura, because one of the details 
that has come out is that there were security cameras around the Pelosi home and they have a live feed to the Capitol Police back in D.C., but no one was monitoring that feed because the speaker wasn't at her home in San Francisco. So it took them 10 minutes to realize that a crime was underway. So obviously they need a a security review to figure out what to do differently. It's funny to think about that. And it's not entirely clear whether the officers would have responded maybe even sooner. Who knows? But the idea of just think of the the cost that's incurred and what is required. I mean, the sheer scope of the problem. I mean, we see what happens when Capitol Police officers are outnumbered. And you think about the notion of just the scope of the toxicity that's happening right now. I mean, how many officers is it going to take in surveillance to bring this temperature down? Let's talk about with my panel here. I've got Alex Burns, Karen Finney, and Doug High. You know, when you when you look at that and think about that the Capitol Police are monitoring, but nobody was watching because she was in Washington, D.C. He was, of course, in California. But this is not the first time that we've seen, even in this election cycle, toxicity. I mean, you wrote a really interesting op-ed for The Washington Post, Doug, because when you were with the RNC as communications director, you were a part of the fire Pelosi uh, slogan. Tell me about how how your thoughts have evolved since then, you say. Well, it it really started, you know, on on Friday. Um, Earlier in the week, last week, I'd emailed a couple of old colleagues and said, hey, whatever happened to the fire Pelosi banner that, frankly, I stole on the last day of my, t- my tenure at the RNC, I brought it with me. Um, and I was going to see, you know, what, what are we going to do with this if this is presumably Nancy Pelosi's last election? And then Friday happened. And it made me think about, you know, what rhetoric I had used in the past and certainly everything that we see that spins everyone up. And, you know, when you start to write about that, you start to get criticisms of both siderism or the other side's worse than mine. So I wanted to be introspective and say, okay, where have I, you know, where have I cross the line. And I don't draw a straight line to the fire Pelosi mm-hmm. campaign in 2010 to what happened last week to Paul Pelosi any more than I do, say, Chuck Schumer saying that uh, Brett Kavanaugh was going to uh, face the whirlwind and pay the price and somebody showing up at his house with a gun. But clearly, you know, if, if, warm, if warming waters cause more and frequent, more frequent and more violent hurricanes, that's what's happening in our political rhetoric right now. So when Steve Scalise was shot and the two security detail members of, uh, who worked with him uh, worked in Eric Cantor's office when I was there, uh, David and Crystal, I know them well, nobody made jokes. We, t- we took it seriously. And Mitch McConnell said the right thing. Kevin McCarthy reached out to uh, Speaker Pelosi's office. That's the right thing to do. Republican members shouldn't be joking about this. Yeah. People, people in kind of Republican circles didn't, because when Gabby Giffords was shot, uh, I went to my office that Saturday morning at the RNC. I uh, was on a conference call with, with colleagues in John Boehner's office, Eric Cantor's office, and we wanted to say the right thing and make sure that nobody on our side said the wrong thing. I wonder if you were the anomaly or the standard. What do you think, Alex? No, look, I think one of the, one of the dynamics here that's so troubling, I think Doug is sort of talking uh, adjacent to it, is... There's this debate after these uh, incidents about whether the person was really motivated by politics or whether they were just Mm -hmm. a violent, crazy person, Mm -hmm. right? And it's such a a bogus, false uh, dichotomy, right, that when you have politicians and public people and uh, in some cases television networks out there demonizing individuals and uh, whipping up paranoid conspiracy theories, you know, violent, crazy people hear those too, right? And we are a country Mm -hmm. full uh, of people with 
mental illness and with easy access to weapons. And at some point, this sort of hair-splitting argument about whether the person was uh, sort of a, a hard-line ideological radical or just a severely disturbed person who's marinating in this completely broken culture, the distinction is just on a practical level. Level, If you're a member of Congress or married to a member of Congress, it doesn't really affect how, how endangered you are. You're, you know, scary. Either well, way, they're yeah. coming after you. You know, there's a new Axios study out, though, Karen, that talks yeah. about, I mean, the connective tissue here is Pelosi, and I don't think it's just the fact that it's Pelosi. There's sure. reporting about how women mm-hmm. are three times as likely to be targeted than even male candidates or incumbents. Yeah. You used to train, as part of the work you do, yeah. train women candidates to prepare them Yes. For this very likely prospect. That's right. And it actually tends to be women, LGBTQ candidates, and candidates of color tend to be face more attacks, othering, hypersexualization, which we've actually seen that with Pelosi a few times, racist, sexist, very vile, and violence in, in those attacks. And one of the things when you are training, working with candidates and their teams, you have to really talk to them about monitoring that because what you want to do is make sure you're aware if it gets to a certain point, because most campaigns don't have security, they don't have the kind of security the members do. So they have to really watch it for themselves so that if it gets to a certain level and they need to go to the police or they need to make someone aware that they know how to do that Um, and to know how to prepare your family for that, right? Because seeing your loved one viciously attacked like that all the time, it can really wear down, particularly children. And, you know, I think part of it, I just want to say, I think part of what's happened in politics is it's become too much of a game. And there is too much, instead of recognizing we're human beings, we, I mean, you know, we used to work on opposite sides. You were at the RNC, I was at the DNC. We disagreed. I thought he was wrong. But I would never, I didn't think you were, I wasn't going to burn it to the ground. And I think that's part of what has changed. Social media has certainly enabled that. I think the idea you describe, and Allison, on this, the idea of, how somehow it's been incentivized to engage in this behavior. And there's this thought that somehow it will translate to votes. Just the fact you have to have training for people who want to be a part of the system, which is never supposed to be a you know, spectator sport, democracy, that women are getting it, that it seems to be translated all across the board. You can argue that's part of the reason democracy is in peril. Oh, absolutely. And furthermore, um, all sorts of poll workers and yes. a- election workers yep. are being threatened more than ever before. These folks are volunteers. I mean, they are also some of the backbone of democracy. We need help at the polls. You know, every time you go to your polling place, you see all the volunteers handing you the ballot, directing mm-hmm. you towards your you know, polling booth. And the fact that they are coming under attack, I mean, all of it up and down, you know, from the high from Nancy Pelosi down to that it's getting, uh, you know, obviously we've talked about this, the demonization. It's a cancer. It's a cancer. Yeah, in our democracy. There's even election worker shortages. And here we are two years before a presidential election. We had the January 6th committee with um, Miss Friedman and her mother talking about their experiences being targeted even for the unfounded stuff. I mean, my goodness. Okay, so speaking of toxic politics, someone who knows a lot about that will be on CNN tomorrow. You can tune in for an interview with Hillary Clinton on CNN this morning. So CNN this morning is our new morning show, as you all know, with Caitlin and Poppy and Don. So tomorrow on CNN this morning, 8 a.m. Eastern, tune in for that. And up next, everyone, I want you to try to imagine this if you can. You are 16 years old. You're working at your job when an armed robbery happens. So what do you do? You call 911. And your mother answers. Well, that really happened to our next guest. They're going to tell us all about it next. 
It really is a parent's worst nightmare, an armed robbery at your kid's place of work. But now imagine, if you will, being on the other side of the 911 call, and you're actually hearing your own child's plea for help and delivering. That's what happened to a dispatch worker, an emergency dispatch worker, excuse me, Terry Clark. Her 16-year-old daughter, Tania Hill, was working at a McDonald's last month when an armed woman came in, forcing Tania and other staffers into the freezer. Listen to this 911 call between Terry and her daughter, Tania. Mama, please hurry up. She got a gun. We're going to hurry. Give me a description. She got a mask on. She got somebody outside. And she got us okay. in the freezer, Mama. Please. You're in the freezer? Yes, she has us in the freezer. Joining me now, Tania Hill, also her mother, Terry Clark, who is Assistant Operations Manager for the Emergency Dispatch Center, and Tyrell Morris, Executive Director of the Orleans Parish Communications District. I got to tell you, when I'm listening to this, the mommy in me is losing my mind. I'm just trying to figure out at what point, Tania, did you realize that when you called 911, that it was your mother's voice on the other end of that call? Well, once I first heard 911, I automatically knew it was my mom. Wow. Like, I heard her voice and automatically knew that's my mom on that line. I mean, that must have been, on the one hand, comforting to hear your mother, the, the, I'm sure the most comforting voice you know. But, Terry, I think about, you know, when your child falls down and you're supposed to train your body as a mom not to react so they don't react and think they're really hurt, you must have had a moment in your own right where you had to steal yourself to make sure you could still do the job that you were supposed to be doing for the last 24 years. What was going through your mind? When I said 911 was the emergency and I heard my child say, Mama, send the police, they're robbing us. In my mind, I'm like, this has to be a joke. But I was like, what is your location? And my child went to screaming, Mom, it's me, Tanil. I'm at McDonald's, like you know where I'm at. So while I'm taking the call, I'm praying. I'm, it's, it's something you, I never imagined would happen, but I know I needed to get the police to my child to save her. And to me, and not only did they have a gun, but you were in the freezer, which obviously had its own safety risk. What was everyone doing around you while you were talking to your mom? Did they even know at that point that that she was the one to try to send help on the way? Yes, because continuously I kept saying, Mama, please, Mama, hurry. We were all in a huddle trying to stay warm because none of us had jackets on. Mm. So we was all looking out for each other while in the freezer. And imagine, Tyrell, that, you know, I'm sure there are moments in the work that you do, you think about the training that needs to take place in order to get people prepared for the worst case scenarios. Did you ever think something like this was going to happen? And just how how she was able, Terry, to be able to be so calm. I mean, Tyrell, when you heard this call, what did you think? I think for all of us, it sent chills through all of our spines, right? But what Terry did that day is what, 911 professionals in New Orleans and across the country do each and every day. Here in New Orleans alone, 1.2 million times a year, people show up like Terry every single day. This job isn't for everybody, and Terry demonstrated that. 
her hard work, 24 years of experience. It takes us 16 weeks to train a call taker to even answer the call. Mm. And I'll be honest, I sit here as a director, and I don't know if I could be as calm as Terry was in this, on, in this moment. But she definitely showed up for this city and showed up for her daughter and made the industry very proud of her. I mean, all of us moms are proud and, and, and just thinking about what you've done. I want to know, ladies, Tania, Terry, what was it like when you all were able to get back together? That must have been quite a reunion. I'm not sure I'd be able to let my daughter go. I'm surprised that you're even able to not have her handcuffed to you right now, Terry, because I'd be like, kids, you're staying here for the rest of your life. Tell me about that reunion moment. Well, after I took the call, because I heard it, just not so I'm a little terrible. After I took the call and while I'm taking the call, tears rolling. So once I disconnect the call, I because I was on overtime and I went and told the manager, I said, that's my child. I need to go. And when I got to McDonald's, the officers was there and they knew she was my child. And the sergeant came out, she was like, Terry, you can't come in. You know, we it's a scene we were talking to, we we're taking care of. Her. And I was like, just let me hold my child. Mm. Because that night, you know, taking that call, I'm hearing her. But when I disconnect, I don't know what's going on within that time frame of me leaving my job there. And the only thing I kept doing mm. was praying. And when my child came out the door, we stood there, and I held her. We stood like about four minutes, and I just kept telling her, I love her. I love her. I said, you're going to be all right. But it was during the night when my child couldn't sleep, and she was, you know, crying in the night and having nightmares, and I'm holding her because that night I let her sleep with me. And that night alone, my baby was like a newborn all over again. And since then, it's hard for me to really let her go places because of the crime. And crime is everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I'm like, I don't want anything to happen to you. But she's a teenager. She want to have a little fun. So it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I can relate every mother out there, every father, every person, every human being out there is listening to what all of you have said. Thank God that you are safe because so many parents don't have the opportunity to hold their child like you have. And I'm sorry, uh, yes. Tania, there goes your social life. You're going to be under your mother's wing for quite some long, a long time or so. It's okay. I'm, I'm, on behalf of all mothers, I support her. I'm on her side. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. We're glad to see all of you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Allison, can you imagine? Mm. I, I mean, I'm telling you, my children would probably be, in fact, my kids are actually under the table right now. Well, uh, <laughs> they are now, not, they're under the table. Uh, no, that question that you asked Terry, that is the one yeah. that got her emotional because that's her impulse. She does mm-hmm. actually want to keep her daughter handcuffed to her for the yeah. rest of her life. And the yeah. idea that she was so scared and mm-hmm. she was so emotional, but she followed her training and was so professional and had the police yeah. go there, you know, obviously that worked. And yeah. uh, just huge kudos to that mother in that moment and how scared she must have been when she finally showed up at that McDonald's. That was incredible yeah. to hear their family story. It really And you see the daughter, Tania, when she touched her mom's arm and she said that, I mean... I did see that. If I didn't have mascara, I'd be crying. <laughs> that was a really nice um, 
interview. All right, we'll be right back. So the Washington Commander's owner, Dan Snyder, is looking to possibly sell the team after being accused of fostering a toxic workplace by Congress and the NFL. Well, Snyder denies the accusations, of course, but after an independent investigation, the NFL fined the commanders 10 million bucks. And Snyder handed over control of the franchise's daily operations to his wife, Tanya. So right after news of a potential sale, ESPN's Stephen A. Smith offered an idea for who should own the team. It's time for black ownership. I know the lady, I think her name is Melody Hobson, that's a part owner for the Denver Broncos, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm not wrong about that. I'm not sure, Uh, but I think that was. But I'm talking about a majority owner of a National Football League franchise that happens to be a black person. That would be nice. You know, it probably surprises people still to this day that there is that absolute void in many respects for ownership. And compare that to just what we were talking about last week, Allison, the idea of what it's like about black coaches. I mean, we're talking about positions of power, the powers that be, with a over 70%, I think, league that is overwhelmingly black. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, Laura, because it was, I think, Dante Stallworth on our air mm-hmm. who, I'll paraphrase, was saying something to the effect of black ownership would go a lot further towards uh, creating pathways for black coaches than, you know, the um, Rooney rule does. So that that's what would make a real fundamental change is black ownership of teams. It absolutely would. And see, everyone, Allison Camerata knows sports. She's talking about the Rooney rule here on a Wednesday night. Honestly, all of these years where I was faking it, like (laughs) I didn't know anything about sports. Well, we all know the one thing. Ownership matters, right? The finances behind it, the powers that be are powerful for a reason. For sure. And I'm not actually sure that's a real bona fide sports story, but I'm working on it. Um, okay, so tell us, tell us what you think about everything we've been talking about tonight. You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. Hashtag CNN Sound Off. We'll be right back. We're now less than a week from the midterm elections that will set the stage, as you know, for 2024. And the war of words is escalating with control of Congress on the line. And already nearly 28 million voters have cast their ballots. The early numbers on pace to outdo even 2018's massive midterm Mm. turnout. Okay, so, Laura, I think this is a good opportunity for some dueling panels where we can talk about um, the notable moments on the campaign trail today. How much time do we have? Let's do four minutes. Okay. I'm writing it down. I'll start. Clock, please. Okay. Let's bring in Georgia's Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, CNN political analyst Estad Herndon, and journalist Mara S. Campo. Great to have you guys. Okay. So um, somehow Herschel Walker and Barack Obama are now (laughs) beefing uh, instead of the, uh, you know, Barack Obama's not running for anything, but still it started, as you know, Lieutenant Governor, on Friday when Barack Obama was in Georgia and he said this about Herschel Walker. There is very little evidence that he has taken any interest, bothered to learn anything about or displayed any kind of inclination towards public service or volunteer work 
or helping people in any way. He's a celebrity who wants to be a politician. And we've seen how that goes. Okay, so then for the past couple of days, Herschel Walker has felt the need to answer that. So yesterday, he basically said, why doesn't Barack Obama go back to where he's from? Here's that moment. Why don't he go back to wherever he's from and get back in his million-dollar mansion? Because where has he been all this time while people are dying on the streets? Where has he been? Where has he been all this time while these gas prices going up? Where has he been all this time as people going to our school system and our president calling our parents domestic terrorists? Do you believe that? So, I mean, Barack Obama hasn't been running for office. That's part of where he has been all of this time. But also, just Herschel Walker, according to local news from Texas, lived in a gated community for 10 years in a almost $3 million home. Yeah, but it's just kind of this pointless fight because as you noted, Allison, uh, Barack Obama's not running for office right now. So why is he wasting time at these rallies criticizing Barack Obama when there's, there are other things he could talk about when he is actually running for office right now? And then at another point he said, well, I'll put my resume against Barack Obama's. And I thought, oh, bless his heart. You know, first black president, nobody wants to go up against that. First um, black president <laughs> versus fake deputy sheriff. Right. I mean, is that the resume? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I assume he means the Heisman Trophy winner. But yes, yes. But the, the, but the issue is we were talking about Obama's criticism. And, you know, we've heard a lot of these criticisms from the very beginning. You know, people criticize his intelligence and whether or not he's prepared for office now or these allegations and saying he's a hypocrite with his stance on abortion. But they don't seem to be working because when you look at the poll numbers, they, they're barely moving, even after allegations come out just suggesting that he is perhaps paid for these abortions. So the question is, why aren't these things working? And what argument at this point would work? What's the answer, Lieutenant? Governor, you're well, in Georgia. I, I think this is entertaining to watch. I don't think it's changing anybody's mind. I think the real news story here is that Joe Biden is not there campaigning for Raphael Warnock and Donald Trump's not there campaigning for Herschel Walker. Uh, I think that's the real story. And this is a proxy on Joe Biden in Georgia right now. I think you're, you're watching Herschel Walker climb up the polls, not because he's doing any better, not because he's answering the questions or, or have answers to the allegations that are against him. It's because Joe Biden continues to be tied to the economy. And that's what Georgians are thinking about. I mean, I think that's a great point. And I think to go back to this, why is why is Herschel Walker making that argument against Barack Obama when he's clearly not in the race? He knows that drives energy among the base. He knows that if Donald Trump isn't going to come down there, a way that he can reach the Trump base, a way that he can drive small dollar money is to go after one of the party's biggest villains in Barack Obama. He is doing this, too, because he's picking that fight intentionally. He thinks that drives Republican voters to his side. And when you look at poll numbers, uh, uh, yes, those scandals haven't hurt him. And it's been Republicans really coming home, uh, uh, to the lieutenant governor's point, to the Republican candidate that have really improved his standing. In our final 15 seconds, Lieutenant Governor, you think, I think it's fair to say, that Herschel Walker is doing better than he deserves to be. Well, it certainly is surprising, and I think the catalyst moment was that debate. Is I normally say debates don't matter, but that debate mattered. Raphael Warnock did terrible, and Herschel Walker certainly exceeded expectations. Right on time. Did you see that, Laura? I nailed it. it. I, you really did. It was almost an episode of the show. Nailed it. I loved it. <laughs> like, what, what will the cake recipe we make over here? We'll take right now. Give me the clock. Give me the four minutes. I want to bring in CNN political commentators Karen Finney and Charlie Dent and former Obama White House senior director Nayara Huck. Listen, I had a chance to talk to Senator Raphael Warnock today about his decisions and views of one Herschel Walker. Listen to what he had to say. My opponent, on the other hand, cannot bother himself to be truthful with us about the most basic facts of his life. Basic facts. 
He claims he was a, uh, in law enforcement, clearly wasn't, and uh, claimed that he was uh, worked for the FBI. He clearly didn't. Claimed that he was valedictorian of his class. He wasn't. Claimed he graduated from the University of Georgia. He didn't. Claimed to have started a business that does not even exist. Herschel Walker has a long history of imagining himself in certain jobs. And now I think he wants the rest of us to imagine that uh, he has what it takes to be a United States senator. Well, imagine that, panel. What do you think about the idea? I mean, the, the polls in Georgia are still deadlocked, it seems. This was beyond the imagination, actually, of Mitch McConnell even a few weeks ago when he said that he was concerned they were going to not gain the Senate because of lackluster candidates, wink, wink, talking about Herschel Walker. But the challenge we're seeing is that the facts and the lies actually don't really seem to matter for a large number of voters. One of the things that Reverend Warnock, the Senator Warnock, didn't mention was abortion. The fact that Herschel Walker's been accused of handing out abortions like candy, uh, and he's a hypocrite in that regard because he's supporting policies that he himself would not actually want to see implemented. Why doesn't that matter to voters, well, it seems? Look, I used to say, you know, once upon a time and not so long ago, candidates used to matter. I would argue they still matter, but a hell of a lot less uh, because we've become so polarized, so tribalized. It's red team, blue team. That's what people are looking at. They're willing to overlook some seriously flawed candidates like Herschel Walker and others. Uh, and, um, and it may not matter at the end of the day. I mean, look, his, his numbers were kind of flat after the first abortion allegation. The second one, they went up a little bit. If there's a third one, you know, they might go even higher. But I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting that uh, Reverend Warnock was talking about trust because President Obama also talked about trust. And that is a reminder to voters that if you have a candidate who, A, you can't trust to tell you the truth, B, as President Obama said, you, how do you know that he's going to be looking out for you when he's more loyal to Trump than maybe he is to you? That, I think, is meant to put a little bit of a wedge in there with voters to just say, can you trust this yeah. guy when the chips are down that he's going to do what's good for you or what's good for the ideology and the party? War- Warnock, he's playing to those swing voters, the handful of them that are left. He wants to get that Kemp Warnock voter, that, that, that Republican or independent, that Republican or independent. There may be enough. Uh-huh. There are some Republican voters who are going to say, you know, I can't go there. I can't go there, and they're going to hold their nose, and they're going to vote for the Democrat. But, Charlie, the suburban voters aren't necessarily what we've traditionally thought of them to be. They are often women of color who have children. We are of a younger generation. That is not who Herschel Walker is speaking to when he makes these comments about Barack Obama. He is not speaking to a younger generation, millennials. He's not speaking to black voters. He is speaking to a hardened set of white voters that are very pro-Trump, who are happy to see the comparison between uh, you know, Herschel Walker and Barack Obama as yeah. equal simply because they're black. I would also say, having worked in Georgia in 2018, I think there's a little bit of a mythology and a Republican talking point. The hope is that if they vote for Kemp, they'll vote for, maybe they'll vote for Warnock. I think the truth is they just won't vote in the Senate race. And actually that ends up probably favoring the Democrat. Well, well sure. we'll see who's right. We only have about six days to go. But you know what? I'm fully confident, Allison. I'm going to hand it back because I feel like my panel just did the thing. Oh, wow. Wow. You also just nailed it. I have to hand it to you, Laura. (laughs) 
power. I even leaned back on one elbow as yeah, I said it, that. and then it went ding. Yeah, that's you know right. That? Yeah. The body language and the timing. I, I do have to hand it to you. That was excellent. <laughs> okay, fine. You've, I've, okay, now I see the sarcasm is there. Fine. It doesn't mean anything any longer. Go. Uh, we want to know what you all think about what's happening on the campaign trail. You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata, hashtag CNN Sound Off. We're continuing our nightly focus on some of the key races that will decide control of Congress. So tonight, it's Battleground, Ohio. CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton is at the magic wall for us. So, Harry, what's the latest on the Ohio Senate race? Hey, Allison. So let's take a look at the situation in Ohio in this tight Senate race. Right now, what we have is Republican J.D. Vance with a slight advantage over Tim Ryan, 47 percent to 45 percent. But that's well within the margin of error. That being said, I'm a little skeptical that this race will end up as close as this. Why? Well, two reasons. First off, let's look at past polling errors in Ohio. How much better did the GOP do better than the final Ohio polls indicated. Look, in 2020 pres, the GOP candidate did seven points better. 2018 gubernatorial race, the GOP did six points better. The same thing in 2016 pres. And in the 2014 governor's race, look at that. The GOP candidate did 10 points better that year. But that's not the only reason why. Take a look at the Ohio presidential results uh, over, over the last few cycles since 2008. What do we see? We see a clear trend towards the Republican candidates. So back in 2008 and 2012, Barack Obama won. But look at Donald Trump. These eight-point wins in both 2016 and 2020. But here's the key nugget to keep in mind. If, in fact, J.D. Vance wins this Ohio Senate race, which is what I expect, the chance that Democrats win Senate control, still 37%. But if Tim Ryan pulls the upset, look at this. The Democrats' chance of winning the United States Senate overall jumps all the way to 85%. So we'll just have to wait and see. Back to you, Allison. Okay, Harry, really interesting. Thank you for that. So let's bring in CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and Estad Herndon and Mara Escampo are back with us. Okay, so uh, Fox had a town hall with Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance, not together, but sort of uh, one went first and another went second. And um, they it was interesting. And they uh, particularly it was interesting on abortion because they said very different things. And the audience seemed to like both answers. Mm. So let's listen to that moment. J.D. Vance wants a national abortion ban, and these, he wouldn't be happy with these people going to Illinois. He wants them to have to get a passport and go to Canada. He called rape inconvenient. This is after 15 should, weeks is what he's talked about. We're yeah, going to ask well, after, all these questions. After 15 weeks. So what's your number? What's the, what you say you don't want it I, afterwards. I, is think, there a I think we go back to Roe v. Wade. Which, Ro- Roe v. Wade was in the third term. In the third term of Roe, in the third term of Roe v. Wade, you could only do it if there was some kind of medical emergency. We don't want J.D. Vance and Ted Cruz and all these guys in the doctor's and office. He said you want to ban abortion in Ohio and across this country. Is that true? Look, I'm pro-life. I, I, I am pro-life. Now, there is a federal piece of legislation moving through uh, the Senate right now, and here's what it does. Very simply, it provides reasonable exceptions, but
but it also sets a minimum national standard, and I think that that's a good idea. We should not in this country be aborting babies who can feel pain, who are fully formed. That's my view, and I'm certainly willing to support legislation that would make that a reality. I'm going to go to Alan. Um, uh, Mara, just interesting. The crowd yeah. liked both of their answers, but they were completely yeah. antithetical. But, but what's interesting about that is that we see that they're really going after the same voters, and that's part of the reason that we see this race so tight. You know, because coming into this, there was the expectation that the Republican candidate had the edge. You know, Trump won this state twice by eight points. The climate politically right now favors the Republican. And the state already has a Democratic senator. So the question is, would they send another Democrat to the Senate? But what we've seen happen with these two candidates is that Vance, you know, really got bruised during the primaries, had a lot of trouble raising money. And Ryan is the best candidate the Democrats could have possibly hoped for. He's a moderate. He's a populist. He comes across as this blue collar guy that everyone can relate to. He's able to raise a ton of money. And so what we're seeing here with that Fox Town Hall is exactly that. They're both appealing to the same kinds of voters. What did you hear there, John? Well, look, I mean, first of all, J.D. Vance said that he would back the, the national abortion ban bill. That's what he said. And he got the applause for saying, I don't think we should be aborting babies when they can feel pain, which is basically a third trimester standard, which is what J.D. Vance was saying. J.D. Vance's applause line was about saying we should stick with Roe v. Wade. And that speaks yeah, to the unpopularity. Yeah. Sorry, Tim Ryan. And that speaks to the unpopularity of, I think, overturning Roe, even in an Ohio uh, line. And you can yeah. see that wasn't the that wasn't the, the response that the, the Fox hosts were expecting from that crowd. But I think it speaks to the frustration folks feel when an activist court comes in and takes away a right that had been on the books for 50 years, even in a state like Ohio. There's a common sense balance here. And that's what they were both getting to in their own way. But backing a national abortion ban is not a common sense balance. I think that I think that's really true. It speaks to how the Republican position, particularly before that Senate legislation was there, was really out of step with where the majority of kind of swing or moderate voters are. But that court's decision then put the, the, the put that issue back in these state legislatures for a lot of these states like Ohio, where the state legislature is totally more conservative and out of step with where the median voters are. And so it goes back to these political structures like gerrymandering. It goes back mm-hmm. to a court that's really not giving the voters real power on this because the way that those maps are drawn, particularly in Ohio, means that they do not have a real say in how abortion plays out in that state. That's what Ryan is trying to hit at. The problem for Democrats right now is I do think he's probably the best candidate they could have. J.D. Vance is probably a weaker candidate than Republicans can have. But the structural realities of Ohio are still trending in that conservative direction. And so the best case for Democrats and the worst case for Republicans could still end up in a Republican win. Yeah, but but let me say this. Look, Democrats have been committing malpractice by not backing Tim Ryan's race more aggressively. Right. And why aren't they doing that? I mean, if if he's the best candidate Democrats have, why are they not backing it? And let me just, before you answer that, he feels it too. So let me, I mean, he's, he's trying to turn lemons into lemonade, but he mentioned it during this town hall. So listen to this. I'm going to get in without any national democratic support, which is great because I won't owe anybody anything. I feel really good about where we are. Average people are supporting us. The unions are supporting us. Working people are supporting us. That's all we need. Okay, so that was today, not during the town hall, but you heard him. It's great that they're not backing me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's Lyndon Johnson had a term for that too, involving chicken. Look, I mean, here, here's the deal. Uh, he's, he's, he's right. His whole pitch is, I'm going to come in, I'm going to represent Ohio, I'm going to be my own man, I'm not going to vote lockstep. And he has the advantage of being true with regard to, he's a moderate guy, he's been running as a pro-worker candidate, anti-China, and he really, his messaging is the best the Democrats have nationally right now when it comes to 
working class and middle class voters. So and, and that reflects the fact he's from Youngstown. He gets it. Um, but I think the fact that why, why haven't Democrats backed it? Yes. I think it's a Lucy and the football problem. I think they feel like they get burned every time. You saw Harry Anton showing those polls in Ohio. You know, Ohio looks close. And then it ends up pulling away at the last minute. So do we want to throw good money after bad? Here's where candidate selection really matters. And yeah. even in a midterm, especially in a state like Ohio, when you got a candidate like J.D. Vance, who's a lot like more Sherrod Brown than, you know, than, than, J, than, than Tim Ryan, where J.D. Vance is a guy who, you know, is a wrote a very successful book, but is basically a venture capitalist coming in for a little bit from out of state compared to Tim Ryan's appeal. So so I, I think Ryan is a fundamentally strong candidate. And I think Democrats have been committing malpractice by not backing more aggressively. And I think, frankly, Obama should probably go do, do a rally there. I think if you talk to people on the ground in Ohio, they'd say we need to make sure turnouts up in Cleveland, Cincinnati. You know, and, and I, I, why that's not been on the menu is beyond. And we're going to see Trump doing a rally there the day before mm-hmm. the election. I yeah. Mean, th- th- to that point, there's other reasons just besides win or loss that Democrats could invest in a place like Ohio. There has been such erosion for Democrats among those type of working class, particularly white voters, non-college white voters, that have made Ohio trend in that opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Democrats who make the argument that the reason to invest in these places is about building a longer-term strategy to really win those voters back, that maybe if it doesn't pay off in this election, it could pay off in future elections. And so by not investing here in Ohio, they made a similar decision in places like Florida. They made in like their, in that argument from both of those candidates is that you're not just losing now, but you're also going to lose. It's also not building the infrastructure for the future. Mm, that's really interesting. Friends, thank you very much, Laura. It's interesting because it does give Tim Ryan the opportunity to say, I don't even need them. I don't, I don't want them. I don't need them. And as John said, I won't be in lockstep. But maybe he'd prefer the money. I mean, one would think, I mean, money makes the world go round, but the idea of the pipeline is so important in thinking about the long game that most politicians ought to be thinking about and playing. But also the idea, I mean, he says he would owe someone nothing. There is something about the notion, it's not as if the top Democrat in the country, President Biden, has the highest of approval ratings. So maybe the the 10-foot pole is not the most unwelcome notion here, but we shall see in just under a week. Because winning the midterm elections may actually hinge, Allison, on... Two very important words, gas prices. And we're going to talk about them next. So the national price of the pump is averaging, get this, $3.77 a gallon. That's right now. It's a small drop from last month, but still higher than a year ago. But I should note that graphic you're seeing right now doesn't contemplate the spikes that have been happening in between. It's not as if it's been this stable 30 to 40 cents a piece. No, it's been spiking. And a few days until the midterms are still upon us. And the question is, will the elections hinge completely on that 377 number? Joining us now, CNN politics reporter and editor-at-large, Chris Saliza, Charlie Dent, and Nayara Huck are also back with us. Now, first of all, I wonder... We're talking about the president today, talking about democracy being on the ballot. It is a very theoretical concept, although important. Gas, they feel every single day, I, Chris. I, I understand why Joe Biden wanted to give the speech that he gave tonight. It, it, it has been an organizing principle of his presidency, right? I mean, when he ran, he ran for that reason, to protect democracy from the threat of Donald Trump. If I'm a Democrat in a swing state or a swing seat, I would have preferred the president give a speech tonight about gas prices, inflation, and the economy. 
Just because CNN poll out today, 51% of people said the economy is the most important issue affecting their vote. Abortion is abortion is second at 15. Now, still, that's you know, I'm not trying to dismiss it, but 51, 15. I I get why he did it. it. It is a through line of his presidency, and I think he's not wrong about the threats to democracy. I I genuinely think that. I just think when people are talking about they go to get fill up their car, they go to get groceries. It's more, you said theoretical, that's more practical, that's more everyday. The, the theoretical argument, yeah, yeah, democracy, that's not great, we, we have to protect it, but I'm not sure people vote on that. I mean, I hear people going off at the pump every time, it's always somebody is cussing, right, I mean, at the I'm pump. I'm that lady who will drive around <laughs> to find that Looking 10 cents per gallon cheaper, mm-hmm. even if it's across the street, I will make that U-turn. But the gas prices are a political stand-in for feelings about the economy, not the facts about the economy. Yeah. Gas prices are sticky. Economists will tell you that once they hit a certain point, oil and gas companies realize, oh, people are willing to pay this. Great. We will continue to make record profits, take those record profits, hand them to shareholders, pay out dividends, and we will not do things like increase production so that, to make them lower or do anything to help the consumer. That's how the whole process works. Saudi Aramco made $42 billion of profit this quarter. Exxon, $20 billion this Fun. quarter at a time of war and energy. I'm not why saying, saying, I'm just saying give a speech on that. I, I, that right. was, I, if but Joe Biden had said that, they'd be in a lot better that. place. Like, that is the part of the Biden. challenge of how our system works, but it just gets blamed. Blame the president. Yeah. Yeah. I, hear, Biden, I hear your butt. Go ahead. Biden <laughs> is better off talking about democracy than oil prices because he's been very demagogic on this issue. Look, demand fell during the pandemic, then supplies were cut as a consequence. Demand came back up faster than supplies. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. And talking about windfall profits taxes, that's just going to further constrict supply. We did this in the 70s. It didn't work. It made the problem worse. And frankly, many of the Democrats, you know, they talk about the war in Russia having an effect. It certainly does. But so does the war on fossil fuels. That's not helping either. They want to phase out fossil fuels by 2030 or 2050. And so... These investors, they, they cannot, they, they're not operating on an election cycle. If they're going to invest now, it's going to take time. investors are average voters, right? These investors are no, already No, I'm talking about making... the people who have to invest, you know, billions of dollars for production. They're not just looking at the next month. They're looking years out. Well, unless you, unless you think that January 6th is not going to make an appearance in a segment on gas prices, <laughs> Senator Cotton actually had a pivot of the two. Listen to what he had to say about what Democrats are doing to remind you about January 6th. Here's what he said. You know, the Democrats are always saying that uh, never forget January 6th. Um, yeah, I remember that on January 6th, gas was at $2.40 a gallon. Um, it was at $2.40 a gallon because for four years we had an administration that understood that American energy production, and specifically fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, and coal, literally power our economy. What do you think about that? So... <laughs> I think that's an incredibly cynical piece of political rhetoric by Tom Cotton saying like, well, gas prices were low on January 6th, so everything's cool, right? Um, But there was a New York Times poll about a month ago, don't hold me to it, but close to a month ago. It said people were asked, do you think there is an active threat to democracy in the country? 79% of people said yes. They asked people, is democracy an issue that you're going to be voting, protecting democracy an issue you're going to be voting on? 7% of people said yes. That delta between those two is a huge problem when Joe Biden gives a speech like he gives tonight, because I think people say, yeah, democracy, that we we do need to protect it. But it's not a voting issue. 
economy, economy, economy. 51% of people said that that's the issue that they care most about. Democracy is way down. I don't know if we still have the graphic. I don't even know if democracy, democracy made it wasn't on, on the list. list. It wasn't on that list. That doesn't mean it's not important. I, I, I want people to hear that. That doesn't mean well, that... Well, actually, pro- voting in elections. Voting in elections, voting sort elections of. Is. It doesn't mean democracy isn't important. It doesn't mean that there isn't a real threat to it. There is. There are people running for office in Michigan, in Arizona, in Nevada, yes. who are in position in election, running for election offices who deny the 2020 election. That is BAD bad every single time, and we should talk about it, so and we should point it out. But I just don't know if it changes what? how people are voting. Well, on it's, it's, it's not, not about resonating. changing opinions at this point. We One week out of an election is getting out the vote, GOTV. Right. Right. So this is, if democracy's on the ballot, that could potentially motivate somebody who, because it's raining, I wouldn't go out to vote. That's a theory of the case, not saying I agree or not, yep. but it does make sense at a moment of time to create a sense of urgency about the system that you're living in and the benefits you've had from being American. What do you think is the idea of the economy? I mean, it's a very big umbrella topic, right? You tell me if the economy is stupid, there's a whole lot under the economy. I think about rent. I think about mortgage. I think about the idea of wages, all these things. Gas, of course, is a part of that. Is that nuanced enough and specific enough to persuade the last minute voters? Well, right now, let's face it, the Democrats are really running up against the issues right now. They're, they're hurting on the economy. They're hurting on inflation. They're hurting on crime. And those issues seem to be trumping the other issues at the moment. I'm not saying abortion is not going to make a difference. It will in some areas. But democracy, I agree, it's a big issue. But that's not what's driving most voters right now. They're feeling the pain at the pump. They see it at the grocery store. They see it in housing. They see yep. it everywhere. This is a real issue. No way around it. And, uh, you know, Democrats can talk about it. But it's not making a difference. They can't do much. If they want to do something on inflation, why don't they just cut tariffs? Well, they don't want to do that because they're protectionists. Well, and so, you, can't, you can't, I mean, the truth is six days out. Yeah. Uh, even if Joe Biden did give that speech I said he should give, you know, on the economy and inflation and gas prices, six days out, you, you know, uh, the congressman mentioned earlier, the, the very few people who are still undecided, maybe it reaches them. But I do think it's a base turnout thing. I, I just I'm not sure that speech changes anything. I just know that if I'm a Democratic candidate sitting in a tough state, the president giving a speech about democracy and then our poll saying, you know, well, economy yeah. is by far the biggest issue, I, I would be like. Dude, can we kind of scooch over here and talk about this? If you're a tough race right now, you're actually not having Biden come to your state right now. You're yeah. having Barack Obama, yep. right, who doesn't upset people. He brings swing voters out, right? They, they are crafting their messages as well as they can locally because, unfortunately, despite the fact that unemployment numbers and jobs are increasing, this feeling of the economy being bad is just not going away. Right. Well, right. as you say, all politics is local and it's also based on feelings, Alice, on how people feel, whether the reality matches the um, perception or not. At the end of the day, how you feel about a candidate is going to be maybe the most persuasive motivation of all. Well, for sure. Do you want to have a beer with them? That's always a litmus test. But also what we were talking about here is that, of course, we're all in our own bubbles, right? Geographically, Mm -hmm. depending upon where you live. And as Mara just pointed out, for people who live in a big city like New York City, say, for those millions of people, gas prices are not top of mind. They take Mm -hmm. public transportation. They walk. They probably can't even tell you what a a gallon of gas is. But obviously you feel differently if you live in Washington State or somewhere else. And so, you know. That's it's not necessarily everybody's top issue. It's true. But then there the idea of if it's a vehicle and a way to get to work or the economy reflects the inability to have to make the choice between either I can afford gas or it's cheaper to stay home. I mean, just the ideas of it. These are some of the really tense moments people are playing right now. But you're right. It depends on where you are. Okay. Meanwhile, an FCC commissioner thinks the U.S. should ban TikTok, which, of Mm. course, is used by millions of Americans 
and millions of teenagers. Our panel's gonna weigh in on that next. So, so here's a general rule that has nothing to do with politics, it has to do with being a decent person. If you read or see something on the internet that has some grand theory about how some people, whether it's blacks or whites or Jews or Catholics or immigrants or gays, that those people are the cause of all your problems. When you see or read something like that, it's safe to say that's garbage. It is false. It is a poison that is dangerous, and we need to call it out as such. All right, well, that was former President Barack Obama moments ago, excuse me, in Arizona, talking about the spread of hateful, divisive rhetoric on the Internet. Uh, There's more to talk about with social media and the Internet tonight. There's also fears about the social media app TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company. One of the FCC commissioners is calling on the federal government to ban TikTok. Brendan Carr says he's concerned about TikTok's handling of U.S. user data and that the Chinese government may try to get a hold of that information. We're back with John Avlon, Estet Herndon, and CNN correspondent Doni O'Sullivan joins us also. There's a lot to talk about, actually, with social media, but about TikTok. Is he right? I mean, isn't TikTok sort of a recipe for user data disaster waiting to happen? Um, I mean, I, I think TikTok would say is an area. Um, obviously, there is this, this, this concern about China here. Um, but I remember Trump talking about this back in 2020. Um, look, I mean, the FCC... The commissioner, this single commissioner who isn't even the FCC chair, with due respect to him, uh, doesn't have that much I'm to say. I'm not saying say. that, he, that he doesn't have, that he has the power to do mm. it. I'm saying, is he right? Um, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people watching would say, well, maybe he's right because it's so damn addictive, rather than saying all our data is being siphoned back to China. The the administration, the, the, gov- the, the, the government is talking to TikTok about this. CAR is not, this FCC commissioner is not part uh, of those conversations. Uh, but I mean, I think, should there be um, concern about it? Of course. But there should also be concern of the many other apps that we have on our phones. Oh, I'm concerned. I mean, am I being too paranoid to say? No, I don't think you're being too paranoid. I mean, I think it actually, the concern is so vast, so wide, and so ingrained into our lives that it can kind of be sort of paralyzing. I mean, I am someone who doesn't have TikTok, but has used TikTok, goes on TikTok, um, um, and knows that that data can be used and might very well be in that, uh, be, be, be um, in the hands of uh, other folks. But I know that when I get on Instagram. I know that when I get on Facebook. I know that on Twitter. And so it is a real problem. And there might be a specific problem with this app, but I think it's become so ingrained on how people get information, how people live their lives. It's going to be very hard to undo that. Look, the practicalities of banning TikTok, you know, yeah, that is something that you've got to be very thoughtful about, recognize that folks are, you know, are going to find ways around it. It's difficult to do. But, you know, which one of these is not like the others? TikTok, because sure. it's owned by yeah. the CCP. And, and that offers a major potential, not only for getting data information on American citizens, but also for influencing the algorithms in a way that can communicate propaganda. And, and so that's something we just to be wide-eyed about. There's problems all about you know, dissemination of disinformation through social media. God knows we need algorithm reform across the board. But TikTok does seem to be in a different category. That said, the impulse to ban things usually backfires. Mm. Let's quickly talk about Twitter. Um, Elon Musk, one of the things that he's considering is uh, charging people for blue checks, mm-hmm. meaning they're verified accounts, as all the four of us are verified. Um, that's, the issue is not do we mind paying eight bucks a month 
although I do, yeah. it's that how will we know who's really who? That's the real issue here, right? This isn't about status with a blue check. This is about the original ideas. How can you verify that you're talking about real individuals as opposed to bots and trolls and bot farms who distort the debates? that we have right now. And Elon Musk said that one of the things he wanted to do was actually to increase transparency and make it easier to verify real accounts. Well, putting this stuff up for sale will presumably muddy that. And that's moving things in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in defense of Elon Musk, (laughs) I don't necessarily believe that he's necessarily coming from a good place, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And let's just say he's not just trying to make money. But I think for so many people, and Alison, you left Twitter for a time uh, yourself, um, for so many people, uh, it's the anonymous trolls, it's the anonymous bots, uh, particularly for women and people of color, that absolutely drown out and abuse people uh, to push them off the platform. So I actually think if we were to open, if Twitter was to open verification to more people, where people actually verify that and you have an option to say, you know what, mm-hmm. I only want to hear from people uh, on this platform that are willing to put their faces to their names. Uh, some people might be into right. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. While, right. Sorry, while at the same time allowing for anonymous accounts because those anonymous accounts are extremely important, particularly in society's dissidents in, in repressive regimes and whatnot. I sorry. totally can see that kind of good faith view yeah. of what of what Musk might be trying to do here. It's just that Musk hasn't earned that yes. yet, right? Yes. Like, yeah. it is just Correct. that in his own actions, in his own use of his Twitter account, it does not seem to be someone who is trying to create an environment for clear and good information. So it makes sense yeah. to me, their explanation, but the practice, but the in, in real life, I have a hard time believing yeah. it. Okay, in 15 seconds, John, can you just tell us what just happened in the World Series? A no-hitter was just pitched <laughs> in the World Series, first time since Don Larson, 1956, and it was four combined pitchers. So while our colleague Jake Tapper, you know, my condolences, his Phillies have been playing a great World Series, but big news tonight, no-hitter, four pitchers, World Series, Astros at the Phillies. I could have told you all of that, Laura, as you know, but I wanted John to tell everybody. <laughs> I know you could have asked. I have every confidence in you, but that's a hell of a game, frankly. I mean, the uh-huh. idea of how long it's been. You're talking about the, the first pitcher, Javier. He went six scoreless innings. I mean, that is unbelievable to think about. I mean, people are paying thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to watch the game in live. They got quite a show. I'm going to send Jake a condolence sure. um, yeah. at text right now. All right, it's time for, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> it's time for all of you to sound off. We'll read your tweets next. All right, time to sound off. Let's see what you're saying out there tonight. We've got a tweet from E.T. Evans. It says, polls don't vote. People do. Get out and vote. Very true sentiment. Absolutely. All right. This is about the interview that you did with the police dispatcher and her yeah. daughter, who was a uh, victim of a, you know, an mm-hmm. armed uh, robbery. So the, the police dispatcher and her daughter have me in tears right now. I can hear the emotion in the mom's voice. We all could. That was I mean, amazing. That was unbelievable to think about. Oh, I still get chills about it. And also, this one was from Carmela on morality. It says... The question is, does moral excellence matter in this country anymore? Doesn't seem like it. Well, we think it does, Carmela. Um, I hope you, it does. Yeah, me too. You know where to find us, at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. Everyone, thank you for watching. We're only a few days away from the midterm elections. Our coverage continues, and we'll see you tomorrow night.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.